Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. Well, this past week I beat the snowstorm and made it out to New York City to celebrate the, what we call, installation. It's a weird word, you know, like a refrigerator, but the installation of our community minister, Jay Exodus Hooper, as a part-time leader in the New York City Society for Ethical Culture. And I was very honored to be asked to attend that august occasion. Now, as you know, if you've listened to much of what I've said, that I believe that humanism, the ethical culture movement, Unitarian Universalism, and secular people in general are in a historic turning point, a turning point at which we at last will give up the last vestiges of our Euro-Christian centrism, a Euro-Christian centrism, that isn't a word, but you get the idea, and embrace the entire world and its people. Not this time as part of a colonizing army, uh, not as a colonizing corporation, or as a colonizing religion, but as people who are interested in other people's lives, their loves, their philosophies, and how they do things so that we can actually learn from each other. As Christian scripture phrases it, and it shall come to pass, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young shall see visions, and your old shall dream dreams. And you know me, I like the King James Version of the Bible. It's always very stately. But wherever you happen to be on the continuum of age, I invite you to see those visions and dream those dreams of a secular future in which we are able to finally get past the parochialisms of our past. And yeah, I'm an old man and I dream dreams and my dream is that people of a liberal religious spirit will at last reach out and heal all of the old wounds that we have created together. And I'm very glad to welcome our new members on this journey. We've been here for a long time. We've gone through a lot of changes and we need to change more. For too long, public spaces, especially public worship spaces, have said, you're welcome here, but leave your queerness at home. Leave your blackness at home. Leave your real life and your real culture at home and come in and be totally uptight with us. <laughs> but we're working to get past that leave yourself at home stuff. Uh, that's what we're working on here at First Unitarian Society, a way for everyone to finally be welcome to bring your queerness and bring your blackness and bring your life and your culture and your hopes and your dreams and then be human together. Not fake human or uptight or repressed human, but actually human together. That, I see it, is the goal and that's this particular old man's dream. And I was glad to join in 
uh, to the Ethical Culture Society in New York and celebrating their step toward that goal. Now, my question today is not a simple one, I don't think, unless I'm missing something, and my question is, what is an emotion? Now, you know me, I look up the etymology of words when I wonder about these things, and the English word emotion originates in Latin, it's a very simple etymology, and it meant move out, to remove, or to agitate. And it's just putting two words together, X, which becomes compressed into eh, out, and movere. So move out. That's what emotion means. Move out of. Then in the 1650s, it begins to be spoken in English as a strong feeling. And now today, after about 1808, it becomes just a word for feelings. So that's about as complicated as we've got here to understand at least the word emotion. It is out of, somehow, moving out of, right? And, uh, and it's a feeling. Okay, that's, that's what we got so far. Well, then I want to think a little bit about the Stoic philosopher Epictetus. Many of you know I like Stoic philosophy very much. One of the reasons about that is that it was a contemplative tradition very close to uh, Buddhism uh, that was then wiped out by the Christians early on in the Roman Empire period. But I, it was a, a, a movement that really was able to focus in and talk about contemplation in a serious way that Christianity didn't do until many centuries later. But Epictetus wrote this, remind yourself that it is not only the desire for power or riches that makes us mean and subject to the will of others. Even the desire for tranquility and leisure and traveling abroad and of learning. To say it plainly, Whatever the external thing may be, it is the value that we place upon that thing that makes us subject to the will of others. Simple experiment, you know, if you want a new Mercedes, you've got to uh, go buy it. And uh, so the will of others will tell you how you're going to go about doing that. It goes from that to love to vacuuming the floor. Epictetus says this, therefore, what is the difference between saying, I am unhappy, I have nothing to do, I am bound like a corpse to my books, or saying, I am unhappy because I have no time for reading? <laughs> well, let me to repeat that so you can think on that. What's the difference between saying, I am unhappy, I have nothing to do, I am bound like a corpse to my books, or saying, I, I am unhappy because I have no time for reading, all right? Clearly, the difference is in attitude. It's about the subjective creation of how we make ourselves, allow ourselves somehow to get that emotion going, but it is our brains telling us this. Now, the theme for February has been the path of love. And so far, I've talked about how the English language itself is sparse in defining the word love. We've got one word for it. The Greeks had six. I've talked about love as being an emotion, how we see falling in love to be also the hard work of loving your neighbor and your enemies. It's not just about falling. It's also about work. And as I pointed out a couple of Sundays back, the translation, love your neighbor as thyself, 
is incorrect as a translation because Greek has more words for love. Rather, the point is the respect for your neighbor as for yourself, which is different, isn't it? Love your neighbor as thyself is sort of, what? That guy? Are you kidding? And, and then you just kind of get, you give up, right? Because, I mean, how am I going to love that guy? But respect, that's easier to work on, isn't it? To have respect for your neighbor as for yourself. That's a goal that we can actually reach toward. Respecting our neighbor can be worked on. It's not about falling in love with your neighbor. Our challenges become even more complicated, though, as we look deeper into this. The Christian religious tradition, which permeates our culture in ways we don't even see, the Christian tradition doesn't have much to say about subjective reality. If you grew up in Sunday school, you may have noticed that. It just doesn't talk about your subjective emotional feelings. You just do it. And, you've, and belief is, is a forceable thing within this thing. It's not about feeling. It's about forcing yourself to do these things. Now, I know I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush, but you're getting the idea. Subjectivity is not what it's about. Early Christianity stamped out the, the contemplative traditions of uh, Stoicism, Epicureanism, and other Greek movements. And contemplation, by which I mean working on your own mind, right? What's my consciousness like? That kind of, comp, uh, of, uh, of contemplation became only the work of the professionals, the monks and the nuns, right? And that got moved into and off of the plate of the uh, the peasant in the field. Right? So they, it was simply moved over and made a profession at that point. The combination of de-emphasizing the subjective experience and the challenges of even understanding what love is when you're speaking the English language team up to create some serious problems in the Western world, I think. Again, I mean, the question is, what is an emotion anyway? Uh, it's something that pops up and goes out Okay, um, the fact is people studying the question still have not come up with a, a uh, real definition. If you look at different fields, you get different kinds of answers to what is an emotion. What does contemplation even mean? Is emotion only what happens spontaneously? And now given these questions, we have to start with the basics. And if you've looked at emotion wheels, and there are lots of them online, right, they try to start very basic, happy, mad, sad, scared, maybe. Or sometimes it's bad, fearful, angry, disgusted, sad, happy, surprised. All right? So, yeah, yeah, okay, so uh, let's, I feel something, I'm having an emotion, right? And you know, how do I categorize it, you know, get, let me look up my emotion wheel, and then I can have a response, right? And that's exactly where the contemplation traditions say, no, you've got this wrong. The sequence is not stimulus response, right? But rather stimulus decision about how I'm going to act response. And as a matter of fact, traditions such as Taoism, Buddhism, and Stoicism and the contemporary movement called mindfulness that are, are kind of a, a, a reader's digest of all of those, all say that the only freedom that we have, 
The only freedom that we have is our freedom of action between the stimulus and the response. That's your only place you get a choice. If you make the same choice every time, you're making the same choice every time. You may, but you have made a choice to do that, all right? All you have is now. Very basic Buddhism and Stoicism. Now, that's exactly what Epictetus is saying when he asks, what's the difference between saying, I am unhappy, I have nothing to do, I'm bound like a corpse to my books, or saying, I'm unhappy because I have no time to read. You see, you have time to read or you don't, that's the stimulus, okay. But between the stimulus and the response comes the spin. And that's what your brain is doing to us, whether we know it or not. What Epictetus is saying is that we can be happy or unhappy about just about any situation, just about any stimulus. Uh, the difference is according to how we react to that stimulus. And we react to stimulus through a whole matrix of social, societal conditioning, and we really don't know maybe how much of our basic emotions we still are able to access because of that. If you've ever been taught that real men never show emotion, then to any stimulus, my reaction is gonna be, I'm a man, I don't have emotion. I'm going to be emotionless, no matter what I feel, right? This is where the toxic masculinity comes in. Where is that energy going to go when you're telling yourself, this is what I have to do? A lot of people have spent a lot of time thinking about this. Now let's say that something makes me angry. I know you can't imagine it, but uh, 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 imagine Rev Kelly saying, David, you are really getting on my nerves. Now, as a hillbilly male, I was taught to never show anger, right? Uh, anger is the most fearful thing that a hillbilly male can, can show because we have guns and we know how to use them and we, and, and we, and we don't have emotions. So we're, you know, so that we, we're, we're a lot, we're very angry and very dangerous a lot of the time. So I, I learned to appear never to get angry, okay? Well, so when Rev. Kelly says, you're lowering a sow's belly, which, which, which you know, I, I've seen movies in which Texas people say that, right? That's right. right. That's right. I would never. <laughs> but I can't get angry about that. I can't pull out my shooting iron like they do in the movies, all right? Everything in my upbringing says I can't show anger. So how do I react? As a hillbilly, I'm going to say, oh, Kelly, I'm so sorry, right? I, I don't know what's wrong with me. You know, tell me, tell me. I can't feel anger. Uh, I, so what do I do? I just have to weep and say I'm sorry, all shucks, right? Which makes me angry inside, <laughs> right? So you see the problem, right? For me, the natural reaction, anger, has been replaced by my societal upbringing. Therefore, it has become automatic stimulus for me, actually, at this point, to feel anger, get the stimulus, and not reflect and have no anger, right? Because I might immediately jump naturally to apology at this point. No, I don't feel emotion, right? So 
You see, that's how the stimulus works. Now, let's take a more literary example. Henry and William James are famous psychologists, novelists, etc., etc. Most people have not heard of their more smart, their smarter sister, who was very, very gifted, Alice James. Alice James was not allowed, as a Victorian lady, to do very much in the world, but she did keep a diary. And one, in one place in her diary, she said, oh, if a lady could only say damn. <laughs> now, that's sad, isn't it? It's light fair in our time, but scandalous in Alice's time. Between the stimulus and the response, she had to study the structure of being a lady and how ladies don't use profanity. What, because that's a measure of your social class and of your respectability and your composure. Ladies don't say damn. That's the challenge. It's difficult to know what, if anything, is intervening between our stimulus and our response because we have so much social baggage that has been packed in to do this. And then we get told to be authentic. Well, what the heck is an authentic response? I don't even know, which is what therapy is for. Uh, and, and, and contemplation, right? Now, I'm... Uh, I'm quite intrigued by a newer therapeutic model called Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, or DBI. This is really, really cool if you haven't looked, uh, looked it up a little bit. It's very close to Buddhism and Stoicism in, in the way that it deals with the idea of what you do with an emotion. The claim of Dialectical Behavioral Therapy is that we have two things going on in our brains at the same time. We have an emotional mind, which is about feeling, and we have a logical mind, which is about reasoning and cause and effect and such. And between those, we have wise mind or mindfulness. In this scenario, both the emotional response and the logical response miss something. They leave out dimensions of the self that would be authentic, and so you put them together, and then the wise mind is able to make a decision. Now, you see how that really is following stimulus, decision, response, just exactly as Buddhism and Stoicism have long done. Now, it is about contemplation, uh, at least ideally. I read my emotion, I consider the consequences, and then I have a measured response. Maybe I don't get angry at Rev Kelly's insult and immediately shut down and apologize, but rather I say something like, why do you say that, Rev Kelly? I'd like to know more. <laughs> Which is too healthy for me, I won't be happening, but it would be good, <laughs> right? More therapy, more therapy. The, the handbook of Epictetus begins this first chapter this way. This is how I want to reflect at the end here. He says, just keep in mind what you have power over. Don't cross the line. If you forget, if you go looking for riches and power, you might get hurt. At any rate, you will miss what's important, happiness, freedom. Listen, learn what illusion looks like. Learn to say, wait, that's an illusion. Learn to ask, what is in my power? If it's not in your power, forget about controlling it. 
Can I control what Rev. Kelly thinks of me? Well, only insofar as I have within my power the ability to act in what I would consider to be a moral and reasonable way, right? I have to find that authentic me there and act in that way. My actions and my reactions are the only thing I have in my power. That's the teaching of Stoicism. We human beings have still not figured out what emotion means. We still haven't figured out how to work with our own consciousness effectively. We come up with lots of methods, CBT, DBT, CBD, LSD, but we don't understand our own minds. We can, however, look to some human beings who have found ways or who are exploring ways to navigate the messy business that we call life. We can find a path for ourselves. An emotion is something that comes up, out, right? Sometimes it comes out. And sometimes, if we use that wise mind of ours, we can find respect and love even for our neighbor. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.